two passages this evening, the first in the Old Testament and the second in the New. So the first reading is Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 4, and that's on page 692 in the Pew Bibles. This is God's word. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. And then our second reading in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. And that's on page 965. The birth of Jesus Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen. And we know that God will add his blessing to this reading from his word. We'll pray for other people around our town and around our world. Let's pray. Dear God, we just realize that this Christmas time is a time where so many people are busy preparing and wrapping gifts. They're out around the town, they're on the internet, and they're looking for something that they can uh, purchase and wrap up and give at Christmas time. There's other people, Lord God, and they're really worried about this time of year because the pressures on everybody else around them seem to be that, well, everyone else is being able to to purchase the things that they would like to have. And, and for them not to have those things really makes them feel as if, well, they can't cope or they're not good mommies, they're not good daddies. And the pressures that this puts on people who are paying that off maybe for the rest of the year, Lord God, the gifts that we give can come in different sizes and different shapes. But Lord God, we... We think of the time of year and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord God, because what an awesome gift to the world that was. The God of the universe, the God who created everything that we know about and loads of stuff that we know absolutely nothing about, but yet you created it. When we go to the outer reaches of our space and our universe and we don't really know what's going on out there, But we do know this, Lord God, you are in control and that you created that from the the depths of outer space right to the inner space that makes us us. 
to the small parts that make our human body what it is, the intricacies of our brains and, and the different components that we have in, our, in, our, in, in ourselves, not only the, the physical parts, but the parts which aren't physical, but are just awesome. Lord God, you're an awesome and you're a great God, and we thank you, Lord, for everything that you've given us. And so, Lord Jesus, at this time, help us to change our focus, to, to recognize who you are and appreciate what an awesome gift. And if we can share Jesus with other people, what a blessing that can be, not only this Christmas, but for many Christmases. So, Lord God, we think of people who are in great debt. We think also, whenever Bran was out last night at the Odyssey, there were people, and for them, Christmas time is getting as much alcohol into their system as they can. For other people, it's purchasing drugs. For other people, it's all sorts of other priorities. And Lord God, when, when you see that sort of thing, and, and, and especially guys who are out at 2 and 3 in the morning, and they recognize that this is what Christmas means, and this is what life means. We realize, Lord God, is a lost world. Help us to be the salt and light. Help us, Lord God, to show by the way that we live, by the Jesus who lives in our hearts, that there's something very, very special about knowing you. And we thank you for that. As we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening and uh, welcome to our evening service tonight. Uh, can I ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 7 and, and have that open in front of you uh, this evening? So let me give you just a moment to do that. Tonight will be a kind of thematic sermon, I hope. Um, and tonight I'm conscious of the topic that we're doing, which is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray that the Lord helps us tonight because there's parts of this passage and part of what I will say tonight that I have questions about still. Um, and you won't be able to answer them. And I probably won't be able to answer them. But I, I just pray that we'll grasp something of what it means for God to become human and dwell amongst us for a purpose and reason. Um, and if you know the answers to some of the questions I have, well, let's, let's discuss it afterwards. Or if you have questions, um, let's bring it up afterwards over a cup of tea. But let me pray for us as we come to this passage uh, and to this passage in Matthew as well. So let me pray. Father God, it is good for us to be able to sing your praises tonight. And Father, as we come to think about Emmanuel, God with us, Father, there is a depth we will never fathom. There is a richness that we will not ever know about or grasp. And yet, Father, we pray tonight, help our minds to understand what your word is saying to us. Help our hearts to be warmed, we pray. And may we just grasp something of what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Lord, help us to know something of the great incarnation of your Son, we pray, as we think about Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, help us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
please keep that passage open in front of you. There's a man going to appear on the screen. Hands up if you, if you know who this is. Um, any? Nope. Great. That's, that's even better. I can tell, tell you lies about him. Um, from my, I have an economics geography background, but this is David McWilliams. Uh, don't put up the next one yet. Is all right. Is, he's an Irish economist, writer, broadcaster. You can take down the book if you can, please. Um, and journalist in, in the Irish Republic. And he became famous for predicting the economic boom and bust that happened in the Irish Republic. But he also writes four books, and they're popular books. You know, he comes from an economics background, but they're actually a great read. And they have an economic, sociological perspective in which he seeks to understand and evaluate how money and economics changes people's mindset, behavior, and attitude. And one of his books is called this one, which will come up on the screen, The Pope's Children. The title of the book is because Williams is looking into the generation that grew up after and during the famous visit of the pontiff in 1979 into Dublin. And Mac Williams argues in his book that that generation, which are probably now between 30 and 45 or 50, are the new elite in Ireland. They're educated, they have resources, capital and cash, compared to the previous generations that ever had anything. And Mac Williams in his book says that as this generation prospered, their mindset and attitude was very different from previous generations. And the example he gives to highlight this difference is when the generation, the new elite, or the Pope's children, start having their own children. And he calls their children, a very funny name, he calls them Destiny's Child. All right? And as he writes about these Destiny's Childs, tongue-in-cheek, but reality as well, he writes this. A logical place to start is with the birth columns in the newspaper. When did people start thanking the world, his wife, and hospital wings? In many cases, the announcements are less about the uh, precious new arrival, but more about the credentials and implied cost of the gynecologist and his team. Often the name of the consultant with full mister or professor title is often as prominent as the newborn. Could this be a first postnatal signal, signal of suburban snobbery where the birth announcement functions as a social signpost to everyone. But this is only the start, he writes. It's quite a long intro, so bear with me. Because marking your child out from the crowd happens early, and along with the recent preference for eulogies to gynecologists, the pattern of names is instructive. The births and death columns of the paper allow us to compare at a glance names in the New Ireland with those from the old Ireland. Ireland of the death notices, old Ireland, has very few names. It is habitated by Maureens, Pats, Jones, Marys, Michaels, Johns and Joes. We had run-of-the-mill names for run-of-the-mill people. In contrast, birth notices are brimming with Aoife's, uh, Sophie's, apologies if you're a Sophie here tonight, <laughs> Amelia's, Daniels, Ben's, the more distinct the name, the better. In the battle to stand out, names replace possessions. In the past, we were poor. Having possessions meant you were rich, and by extension, a cut above the rest. Today, he's writing when the, the boom was on, when the country is spending an a splurge, and mere possessions are to a penny, 
names take on a different, uh, take on economic, social, and cultural significance. The more unusual the name, the more unusual and therefore interesting the parents. What's the big deal, you might ask? Well, there's none really until you examine the psychology behind names. It is first and most public statement that the child's parents will make about their special one. And as a result, it says a lot about the parents. Their baby's name is the first indicator of uniqueness, he writes. To have a common name can be an embarrassment. How many times have you seen a young mother wince at the sound of another mum calling out the name of what she thinks is her child's, child's only to realise that the name she picked is now as common as muck. She thought when she chose the name it was old-fashioned, quite classy, and most importantly, reasonably unusual. Everyone else had the same idea, and there are now Sophies everywhere. (laughs) Tongue-in-cheek a little, but in reality, this is what he calls destiny's child. You name the child so that it has a uniqueness. You give it a name that's not like Mary or Joe anymore, but rather Sophie's and Amelia's. And the point that David McWilliams is making is that names tell you something about the parents, and they also tell you about the hopes and aspirations for the child in a name. What's in a name? Everything. Destiny's child, what's in its name? It's going to be unique, brilliant, best. Names are important, they're significant, and tonight we're starting a two-part sermon series entitled, What's in a Name? And we're going to be looking at the name Emmanuel that is connected with Jesus, the Son of God. And I want to look at this important and vital and relevance of this name under three headings tonight. The first is this, Emmanuel in the biblical text. Emmanuel, the theological significance of it. And Emmanuel, the pastoral importance of it. All right, there's where we're heading tonight with this. The first heading then is Emmanuel in the biblical text, which you have in front of you. Did you know that Emmanuel occurs only three times in the whole of Scripture? There are two references to it in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, open in front of you. And then if you flick over to chapter 8, verse 8, there's a reference to Emmanuel. And then Matthew's gospel, which was read earlier to us in chapter 1, verse 23, he quotes directly from Isaiah 7, 14. Three occurrences of the word Emmanuel. So only three. But in order to look at the importance of and the relevance of this name, you've got to get into the kind of biblical text or the context in which it was written. So stay with me in chapter 7 for a few moments. Isaiah here is speaking into a situation which was dark and hopeless. The king of Assyria at the time was a guy called, let's call him Tigalat, which is his real name. He was a formidable warrior and king who led the Assyrian army from the north of the map and sought to influence into Judah and Syria and on these places in 735 BC. Tigalath was opposed by Israel and Syria in the north at this time. They'd formed an alliance together, knowing that Tigalath was going to come and seek to take them over. The alliance of Israel and Syria sought to get Judah in the south involved by asking its king, King Ahaz, to support them. But Ahaz refused to comply. So Israel and Syria are seeking to overthrow Ahaz, Judah. But into this situation, God spoke to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. 
And God spoke words of hope and assurance to Ahaz to trust him, to trust him for the here and now and the future. However, King Ahaz kind of waggles on the T, as it were. Despite the Lord telling Ahaz to ask for a sign, see it there in 7.10, to trust him for this sign, Ahaz refuses in verse 12 because he piously doesn't want to test the Lord. I couldn't ask the Lord for a sign, he says. That'd be testing the Lord. And despite his refusal, the Lord God gives Ahaz a sign, which is the famous verse, chapter 7, verse 14, which says this, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. What this sign is saying is that God will be present amongst his people and the sign of that deliverance will be a child who's born, who's called Emmanuel. And that's exactly what happens as you read verse 16. Do you see it there in Isaiah chapter 17? Let me, let me just get it up here. And, we'll, and in verse 16, For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings who, who you dread will be laid to waste. So by the time this child grows up, there is deliverance for Judah and for Ahaz. And chapter 7, verse 14 is an unusual passage because it's what we would call in prophecy a double fulfillment, which means it was partly fulfilled through the birth of a son, probably to Isaiah, who by the time he grew up, God had delivered Ahaz and Judah, had been present among them. But then also this prophecy was pointing forward, double fulfillment, partially, presently, and then into the future. But the completion of this prophetic word would only be done in the future when a son who was born to an unmarried girl would come. Flick over to chapter 9 for a moment of Isaiah, and you'll read the famous verse, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, which Isaiah would later write of this son to be born. He would say this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So do you see it's a double fulfillment, fulfilled partly in the time of Isaiah, as God delivers his people. They could only be been delivered if God was amongst them. And then it points forward to Jesus in the New Testament as this is fulfilled. And what we have read already in Matthew's narrative of the birth narrative of Jesus, we see Matthew making the connection for us that the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And so we read, if you want to, I'm sorry, you're flicking a lot. Go back into Matthew's gospel for a moment. Matthew chapter 1. So Matthew chapter 1. And verses 22 and 23. And here's what Matthew writes, having in mind Isaiah's words of chapter 7, verse 14. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. If you ever read Matthew's gospel, it is full of fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. This is to fulfill what was written by the prophets, the Old Testament. And so here we have Matthew, the gospel writer, hurling in 
the birth of Jesus. But more than that, he's telling us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It's not wonderful to think that, that Jesus here has come and he is described as Emmanuel, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and it is God with us. And this takes us to our second heading tonight, Emmanuel, the theological significance of it. When you hear the words Emmanuel, God with us, there is a deep and profound truth before us in this name. One way of trying to understand that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, is to take a step back and look at the Scripture's overarching biblical narrative. And so if you take for a moment a brief return to the Garden of Eden, we find Adam and Eve created for relationship with one another and with God himself. We know from the Genesis account that fellowship existed with the first family and with God. God was with them in Genesis, present amongst them. They communicated together. They walked in the garden, as described as. However, the fall puts curtains to all this relationship of God being with his people. We're told in Genesis, it'll come up on the screen, the following after the fall. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove out man, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They were banished, kicked out. No longer was God directly with them, but because of their sin and unbelief. And as you follow the biblical narrative through the Old Testament, you discover at different times and occasions God is present with his people, but not directly. Exodus, how was God present with his people? Through a fire and a pillar of cloud. As you go on into the biblical narrative, when the tabernacle is built, they build a holy of holies, which separates God from the people. Later on, we find an outline that God puts out to how will the people enter. It is through the high priest and through sacrifices. It's the only way they can enter. It's all restricted, limited. God is not directly with his people. God with his people in the Old Testament is never like it was pre-fall in the garden. There is always separation between God and his people. However, when you take the following scriptures, they point to a time when God again will be with his people. Let me read one of them out from Ezekiel. When he's describing the city of God, this is what he says in chapter 48, verse 35. The distance all around will be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there, dwelling with his people. And of course, John's vision in Revelation of the new heavens and the new earth, which we often read at funerals. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old first and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be these people, and God himself will be their God. So here we have Genesis being kicked out, separated. God is not directly with his people. Then we have Ezekiel and even Isaiah and Revelation pointing to a time when God will dwell with his people forever. He will be with us. The question is, how does humanity, people like you and I, go from the state of the fall where God is not with us to the hope of God being with us for all eternity in the new heaven and new earth? How do we manage to go that way? 
What makes that transition for us? What happens for us to be in the new heavens and the new earth, to be dwelling with God forever? Is there something you can do to achieve it? Maybe you can do better than Adam and Eve. And some of us think like that. Some of us think, you know, if I could only try harder, you know, he was an awful fool. <laughs> he shouldn't have listened to her. You know, and that's the way we sometimes think. And we think, I can live a good, reasonably good life and I can be obedient. I don't disbelieve God very much. Perhaps we could try to be good, hoping that God would take us back. Many of us live like that. I know many of my own family who live like that. You know, I'll try and be good and then see if I can get in. And even good Protestants do it too. I'll try and live my life and well and have a good work ethic in hope that God will get me in. No assurance. Is it good enough? And then there's others of us who don't even give a care anymore. I don't care if God is with us. The reality is we cannot do better. We cannot be good enough. And our don't care attitude shows us as a people who have gone so far away from him that we don't even want to be with him. You know what? We need something like this, an advert that reads something like this. Needed, a representative before God. That's what we need. Some of us think, you know, I could be it. I could try, but we'll always fail. Needed, perfectly obedient, submissive and glorifying to God in word, deed, and heart attitude. That's what we need. We need a substitute, someone who would pay our sinfulness, our debt. That's the job descript. But who's going, who's up for it? But you know what the great and good news is, is that God has provided for us that God has taken the initiative. And that lovely little verse in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that's what he does. He comes. And I want to complicate tonight by even going a little bit harder. Shorter catechism helps us answer some of these questions, all right? You know, there is a bit of a trend at the moment to be catechizing some of your children I, I, when I read this, I go, you know what? I'd love to have learned this as a kid because I'd find it hard to learn it now. Questions. Short academy asks a question, then it answers it. And this is what it says. It asks the following question. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? Maybe Bill Adley could answer this, could he? God did 60 years. <laughs> okay, 60 years ago, Bill probably, probably would have reamed this off, I think. The answer to this is this. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus who being the eternal Son of God, became man and was so and continued to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. The incarnation. God becomes man. The eternal Son becomes man, takes on two distinct natures, has the divine nature and the human nature, but one person. That's hard to get your head around and then what happens is Catechism goes on and asks this question, question 22. How did Christ, which some of us are probably asking, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and being born of her yet without sin. This is amazing when you think about it, that the, and particularly about the God of Christianity, that God the Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is eternal, infinite, uncreated, became man, 
took on human nature. He was born of a woman, yet was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This all means that Jesus has two distinct natures, human and divine, and yet one person. And when we think about this, there has been much debate and much heresy down through church history about this, about how it all holds together. How can he be divine and human? And there's some genuine questions. How can the divine one take on human? What does it mean as he grew up? Was he, did he lose some bits along the way? And what we have to say is that there is a mystery to it. It's just like the Trinity, trying to understand it. It's, it's graspable, but not totally able to understand it. But I like how Bruce Ware puts it. We're incapable of understanding completely how one person could have two full and integral natures, especially when one of those natures is uncreated, infinite, and fully divine, while the other is created, finite, and fully human. But you know what? Jesus, this is who he is. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's unique. It is supernatural to a point Jesus historically most can add up to. If you ask the guy next door to you tomorrow at work, do you believe Jesus really existed historically? They'll probably say yes. But is he divine? Is he fully man, fully God? And we have the beautiful Nicene Creed who puts it like this when we think about these things. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Nicene Creed came out of many heresies that were happening in the church to formulate biblical truth about who God was. In Jesus, we have fully man and fully God as God comes amongst his people. And this takes us to our third heading tonight, and probably the one that you're wanting to get to, Emmanuel, the pastoral importance of it. Many of us will get a kind of Christmas card that will look like this over the next couple of weeks, and it'll say, Emmanuel, God with us. What a lovely kind of tone to it, isn't it, at Christmas time? And it'll sound nice and cozy and easy to share with others. You know, God is with us. He's Emmanuel. But the question you have got to ask is this, what difference does it make? So what? What difference does this make? It can't just stay cozy and nice on a card. And I want to outline why Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, is so important, so relevant, and so vital for us. And the first and most important is that we need Jesus to be both human and divine, God with us, because the deity and the manhood of Jesus are fundamental to his saving work. I don't want to impose on, on, on Bill's son, next Sunday morning's talk, but briefly, when we say that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, this is great news for us because there is a plethora of scripture that remind us that when Jesus took on flesh, manhood, humanity, he did so to die. That was the primary reason for him coming, to meet the law's demands. As we looked at Exodus 20, none of us can keep those things. Christ has come to do it for us. He came to be our representative, our substitute in the flesh. Listen to some of these examples. Philippians 2 says this, but Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. 
he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God with us, Emmanuel. Later on in Colossians 1, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God, Emmanuel with us, taking on flesh. Ephesians 2, by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. Romans 8, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in sinful man. Jesus, the eternal son, takes on flesh so that sin is put on him so that he dies for us. And lastly, Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more than now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, is for our salvation, our reconciliation to God. All of God's initiative, out of love, his grace to us. We don't deserve it. We're undeserving sinners. The incarnation is for our salvation. If it didn't happen, we would be dead in our sin. And you know what? God takes the initiative. We can't bridge that gap of God being with us in, in past and God being with us in the future. Only Jesus can by being Emmanuel. God is with us. God is here to rescue us and save us. And I, I, you know, there may be some of us here tonight and going, you know, I, I've, I've never seen that. I've never seen why he became a man in order to rescue me and save me. That's what he's done for us. He has come to rescue and save us. And this is what he's done. He's left the courts of heaven. Let me read a lot, my favorite carol out to you because it captures what Christ has done through the incarnation. It says this, and hark the herald angel sings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Brilliant, isn't it? It's the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus lays his glory by. It's not fully expressed as he becomes fully man and fully God, but he's born that man, men and women may, may no more die, born to raise us and born to give us a second birth. It's the glory of it. Jesus is with us, God to rescue and save us. That's his primary reason for God being with us. Let me finish with a few other points. Let me read out Nicene Creed again. As we kind of summarize God with us, it says this, for us and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. For us and for our salvation, Jesus takes on flesh, becomes God with us, Emmanuel. This is the primary reason that we can see why God is Emmanuel. But there is another secondary and sometimes we overemphasize this without knowing the primary one, and that is that God relates to us because of his incarnation. 
Isn't that wonderful to think that God understands, he knows what it is to be human and live in this world all because he became Emmanuel, God with us. But it's important that we know that as we worship him and follow him. It's important that we know these couple of points. In suffering and death, Jesus knows because he is God, Emmanuel. Jesus lived on this earth. He saw suffering. He met with those who were blinded, paralyzed, ill, and sick. He wasn't sheltered from it, but he experienced what it was to be beaten, suffering, rejection by family, friends and enemies. He knew what it was to be isolated, misunderstood. Jesus wept over death and its impact, and he died a cruel death himself at the cross of Calvary. Folks, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in suffering and the valley of the shadow of death. But he's also there in temptation and moral conflict. Jesus saw others how they were tempted with money or power. Jesus himself was tempted. That's why we were reading in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So tonight, folks, where's your temptation? Where's your struggle? What are you struggling with? Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it sex? Is it power and money? Because if you are pushed on those sides, we have God who is Emmanuel, who has come to break the power of temptation. But what else has he done? He knows what it is to be hungry and tired. I don't know if you're like me, but when I get hungry, I get irritable. (laughs) Jesus knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to thirst, to be poor. He knew what it was to struggle for basics, knew what it was to be tired, weary, because he was fully man, God with us. Maybe you're tired from doing the normal job that you're doing. God knows. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Lastly, he knows what relationships are. Acquaintances Jesus had. Some were close friends, but he knew what it was to be betrayed by a friend. Trust broken. Relationships lost. His own family thought he was mad. Jesus knew what it was to be truly human, to have friendships with others. But in all this, Jesus was fully God and fully man, the God-man. This understanding of God affects the way we pray to him. It affects what we think about him, how we relate to him. And the question tonight is this, what's your situation? What's your life circumstances? What's your burden tonight? Because if this is truly who our God is, there is God Emmanuel with us, well then turn to him. Seek him for your life for salvation. Return to him in your life situation and circumstance because this is God Emmanuel with us, fully man and fully God. And lastly tonight, this is good news. If Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, his life and teaching are a means of declaring him as God. And so, folks, as you go out tomorrow, as you seek to reach your neighbors and friends, remember that God's word will reveal that Jesus is God's son. John wrote his gospel. He wrote this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The scriptures we have are written so that we will believe that Jesus is God's Son. Many rejected Jesus, believed he was only human and not God, but there were many others who accepted him as fully man and fully God. And when we accept Jesus is this. Everything changes because this is what we read in John 1, 12. Yet to all who believe 
and receive him. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what happens when we take Emmanuel, God, with us and we believe in him and we give our life to him. And that should encourage us also to be speaking about Jesus and his words and his claims, taking confidence that God will reveal himself to people so that they may become to know Emmanuel, God, with us. There's lots in that tonight, and I'm sorry I've packed it so hard, but let me pray for us as we head out this week. Father, tonight we confess that we love the sentiment of Emmanuel, God, with us. It's easy to say, it sounds comfortable, Father. It's even cozy. And yet, Father, the reality of it is that if Jesus is truly Emmanuel, God with us, it tells us that we have a problem. And Father, we confess tonight that we are sinners, that we are people who are in so need of rescue that you gave your one and only Son, that the champion of heaven, the morning star, left the courts of glory, took on flesh in order to rescue and redeem people like us who were lost. Father, we praise you and rejoice in your works of salvation. And Father, as we share about this Emmanuel with others, give us confidence, we pray, that you can reveal your Son to others. Lord, we don't have all the answers. We struggle to get our head around the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. But Lord, we take encouragement that those who grasp that Jesus is the Son of God can become children of God. Father, thank you that one day there is coming a day when you will dwell with your people forever in a place where there won't be death or suffering or the effects of sin. And Father, in the meantime, will you help us this Christmas time to constantly rejoice in him who is called Emmanuel, God with us, and help us to share him with others, we pray. Lord, help us tonight as we think about your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.